0: We are continuing uh, in our parable of the two sons. and this is part two. Last week we talked about um, the younger son. this uh, week. We're talking about the older son, but I'm going to read through Luke 15:11 through 32 again, uh, for those not only who weren't here last week, but also just to refresh us in the story. Uh, Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said there was a young man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me the share." of property that's coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in a reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother, his older son, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, the servant that is, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Pleaded with him, that is. But he answered his father and he said, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father God, now we pray that your grace and the truth of this story would resonate so deeply in our hearts to transform us by it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, I've been watching um, uh, a new Netflix series called Better Call Saul, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's really good. And uh, it's about these two brothers, Chuck and Jimmy, and they're lawyers. And Chuck is a partner of this big respected law firm in New Mexico. And he's a pillar of the community. He's really good at what he does. But his brother, Jimmy, who's about 10 years younger than him, he's the reckless one. He's the one who, even since he was a kid, has just been wild. He's made the wrong decisions, and everyone has always had to come after and clean up Jimmy's mess. And Jimmy's from Chicago, they're from Chicago, and Jimmy decides he wants to clean his life up, and he moves to New Mexico to see if his brother Chuck will give him a job in this law firm. And so he starts in the mailroom, and over the course of years, 10 years, he, um, unbeknownst to anyone else, he takes classes online, he gets a law degree, and takes the bar and he passes, and he's hoping to get a job at the law firm, and it doesn't exactly pan out like he wants it to, and he ultimately goes into practice for himself, and one day in a heated discussion, uh, Jimmy finds out that all those years, he was not able to move up, let alone become a lawyer at his brother's law firm, um, even though it seemed like, The powers that be, the other partners didn't want to hire him. It was actually his brother working against him. His older brother, Chuck, was working against him. And the frustration that Chuck felt is it was hard for him to accept Jimmy, who's essentially been a screw-up his entire life. It's hard for him to respect Jimmy as a lawyer because as far as Chuck is concerned, he's dedicated his entire life to the law, to practicing law. And there's a scene where he tells Jimmy, I've dedicated my entire life to this, Jimmy, and you think you can just blow in overnight and have the same stature and respect in the community that I have, and I've given everything for it. The law is sacred. And it's a painful scene because no matter what Jimmy does, Chuck won't accept them. He won't accept them as an equal. And he can't celebrate the fact that Jimmy's sort of turned his life around. It's a hard scene to watch. Well, One of the oldest stories in the Bible is the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his younger brother Abel. And when God asks Cain, where's your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? And of course, most of you are familiar with the story. Cain is punished by God to wander the earth, and the message to us reading and hearing the story of Cain and Abel is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You know, it's the older brother in this story, the older son, that's really the punchline here. The older brother's really the punchline of the parable of the two sons. So focused on his younger brother's offenses that he's entirely unable to celebrate this new development that's taken place. And in verse 25, it says, the older son was in the field, and he came out and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. You know, there's this theme of celebration all throughout the New Testament. Banquets and drinking and eating and feasting. And it's interesting because Jesus' first miracle was at the wedding of Cana, where he turned the water into wine. Really good wine. Jesus was no teetotaler. It wasn't just wine, it was the best wine. That was Jesus' first miracle. He was always celebrating, it seemed like, in the eyes of the Pharisees of his opponents. In Matthew 11, he's accused of, it says they, they called him a glutton and a drunkard because he was always celebrating. He was always eating and drinking. And in Mark 2, they questioned Jesus. They said, why don't your disciples fast like we do? And Jesus said, fast? People don't fast while the bridegroom is with them. It's time to celebrate. Jesus celebrated a lot because what God was doing through and in him and through his ministry was something new and incredible and fantastic, I've told the story in the past about my good friend, Dwight. Dwight was the guitar player in our church back in California, and Dwight worked in the adult film industry. Uh, Not while he was a guitar player. His past life, he worked in the adult film industry as a producer and went to jail and did a year in prison. And while he was in prison, he became a Christian. And when he got out, he was in a halfway house right behind where our church was. And he showed up to church one Sunday and I've shared this in the past, that it was one of the most authentic conversions I had ever seen in my life. It was amazing to see Dwight's uh, zeal for the Lord. He was just so zealous, and when he became a Christian, when Christ radically altered his heart and his mind and his life, for Dwight, everything was a reason to celebrate. Dwight was kind of a hippie. He was my age, but he was just kind of, you know, he belonged like in the 60s or something. He was a hippie. And we'd go hiking together. We became backpacking buddies. And uh, he would, I, I told the story in the past, we would hike and he'd, he'd kneel down on the trail and he'd look at a leaf and he'd go, look, man, look, look at this leaf. And, and I was irritated by Dwight. I'm not making this up. I was irritated by Dwight because I thought no one can be that, you know, that happy about the world, but he saw the world in technicolor. The wor- it was like the, the color turned on. Everything was black and white before he, before he came to know the Lord. And after he came to know the Lord, it was like the world was brand new. It was like he had just landed from another planet. And he was always celebrating. And I look back, and, and I was irritated by it because I, I, that wasn't my story. You know, I was kind of bogged down with the cares of life. And, and I realized, looking back in retrospect that Dwight wasn't just celebrating, but God was celebrating him. The joy of this repentant sinner coming to know the Lord Jesus was something that God was celebrating, and that celebration lived in Dwight's heart, because God was celebrating him. But not everyone got it, including me. Well, the older brother, verse 26, when he sees what's going on, he calls one of the servants, and he asks, what these things meant. And the servant said, your brother has come, your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother, well, he was angry and he refused to go in. You know, Luke 19 characterizes Jesus' ministry as a rescue operation. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And the mystery of this parable is not only that the younger brother is lost, but that the older brother, in a very real sense, is also lost. The older brother is also lost. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller, points out that though the younger brother's lostness is more visible and on display, right, his selfishness has brought ruin and collapse on his life, the older brother's lostness is more subtle. He's just as lost but it's more subtle, it's not as visible. His life is ruined by anger, superiority, bitterness, and resentment, and this is what Keller in his book calls the elder brother spirit, the elder brother spirit. And the elder brother spirit is when you've done all the right things and life still doesn't go your way. You've obeyed God, you've worshiped him, You've prayed, you've been a good boy or a good girl, and life still doesn't go your way. This is the elder brother spirit. And it reaches people at every place in life, especially mature Christians, it can reach. Because we examine our lives and we've kind of beat a lot, we've kicked a lot of our outward sin habits, right? The riotous living of the younger brother, we may not do any longer, but our hearts can be sunken in bitterness because we've done everything we think, we've supposed to, we, we think we were supposed to do, and life still doesn't give us what we want. God still doesn't do for us what, he wants, what we want him to do for us. Now, as a pastor, I can say that pastors can totally have an elder brother spirit. You know, some new church springs up, you know, with some pastor with skinny jeans and way too much gel in his hair, and overnight, boom, they've got 700 members, you know, and our first, you know, for those of us who've been plugging away in the field, you know, for years, our first response can be, you know, compromiser, right? And pastors can have an older brother's spirit also. It says, but the father came to him, this older brother, because he refused to go in. He himself has already started to shame the father in his own way. Here is this noble man who's celebrating with guests, And now he's got to run out into the field to plead with his other son and experience even further shame at this other son. father comes to him and pleads with him, and he says, um, the son says, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. We can feel that way, right? God, I've been doing everything you want me to do. Everything you've told me to do, I've been doing it. And he says, and in all that time, you never gave me even a young goat for a feast with my friends, let alone killed the fatted calf. He's lecturing the father now. This is even greater indignity that the father is experiencing at the hands of this other son. Elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, they deserve a good life. They get a good life. And here's the deal. If that's the way you function, even though you feel like you've lived up to God's standards, you'll become furious sooner or later with God because life never seems to go the way you want it to. If this is how you understand your relationship with God, it's a result a results-oriented relationship. I do this, God, and you do that. I do this, you do that. I I take two steps, you take two steps. If I obey, I get good things. If I do what you want, you better do your part and answer my prayers or, or make my life happy and make my life good. And the son says in verse 30, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. And you celebrate by killing the fatted calf? It's a cry for justice, right? He's thinking, how is this just? How is this just? That might be the cry in our hearts too, right? We look at the world and it seems like the wicked prosper. It seems like people who don't obey God and do what God wants. People who don't live good lives, in our opinion, they seem to have everything, right? The grass does always, in some sense, seem greener. And we know in our hearts it's not that way, but it seems that way. And it seems like Job, right? That the righteous not only don't get what they should, what they, what they have coming back to them, but God rewards often the righteous with misery, right? That, this was Job's argument in the book of Job. It's interesting. Job is maybe one of the oldest books in the Bible, maybe the oldest book in the Bible, and it wrestles with this question for 40 years of its you know, 39 of its 42 chapters. Job's argument to God is, how is this just? I've done exactly what you wanted. I've been obedient and faithful. I've lived the holiest life I know how. I don't deserve this. And that's the cry of the older brother. I don't deserve this treatment. I don't deserve this treatment. I don't deserve what I've been given. And it's the cry in all of us that really says, God, I can't figure you out. And I'm frustrated because of it. I'm frustrated, God, because I just can't figure you out. You don't make any sense to me. And you know something? Sometimes God doesn't make sense. Sometimes God defies our logic and our understanding. This idea that the ways of God are mysterious is not an understatement. God is a mystery, and sometimes it's very hard to find out what God is doing in our lives. The wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and the book of Job, is the exception to the rule. So in the Bible, there is what theologians call this law of reciprocity. You know, there's these things. If you do this, this happens. And generally, that's true, right? Train up your child the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. It's not a promise, but it generally is true, Right? You save up, you put grain aside for a rainy day. You know, you won't starve to death when the famine comes. Generally, that's true. But the wisdom literature straddles when life goes dark. When you've done all the right things and then bad things still happen to you, right? We're not the first people to wrestle with this idea. There is a sense in which we want to control God with a good life and good deeds And sometimes that's the result of the fact that they're not done for their own sake. In other words, sometimes we live a good life, we live obedient lives, not because we value goodness, but we want results from God. Again, it's back to the results thing. It's a result-oriented faith, and a result-oriented faith is dangerous because you tend to serve God not because He's beautiful, but because He's useful. What can God do for me? What can God give me? It's a a way of bargaining with God. It's a way of seeing your life as a bargaining chip with God. It doesn't celebrate good works for their own sake, but it always sees that as you're kind of always keeping score, hoping that if you build up enough chips, you'll be able to cash in with God. And life just doesn't always work that way. If you serve God for results, you'll always struggle to handle suffering or trials, because in your mind, it doesn't compute. You've done the right things, and, but God isn't keeping up his end of the bargain. And Keller goes on to say, and this is a quote, if you think goodness and decency is the way to merit a good life from God, you'll be eaten up with anger since life never goes as we wish. You'll always feel that you're owed more than you're getting. There's a parable Jesus gives in Matthew 19 of the day laborers. And a man goes out and he hires laborers to work in his field and agrees to pay them a denarius, which is a silver coin. And then a few hours into the day, he hires other people to come and work in the field and agrees to pay them a silver coin. And then it gets to the point where at the end of the day, there's only an hour or two left in the workday, but the the, 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 the foreman, still agrees to pay the workers the same wage. And at the end of the day, those who had been there since the very beginning of the day are, are infuriated with the foreman. And they say, what do, you, what do you mean by paying these people the same wage as us? We've been working all day long. And what's interesting about that parable is Jesus gave that parable in response to a question that Peter had asked And this was Peter's question. Peter asked, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. What will we get in return? That was the question. Jesus gave that parable about the day laborers in response to Peter saying, what are we getting in return here? What are we getting out of this, Jesus? What are you going to give us? What advantage might we have over our neighbor, over over, over other people from serving you? Surely this is going to pay off sometime, right, Jesus? And Jesus gives the parable of the day laborers. He wants to know what advantage they're going to have, and Jesus essentially says, doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. Salvation doesn't work that way. You are not always able to quantify the glories and blessings of your salvation that way by being able to look at how you've benefited more than other people. Because sometimes, on the surface, with our natural eyes, sinners prosper more than we do. Sinners have better lives than we do. Sometimes. And if that is your grid for understanding, your, st- your place with God, it's a faulty way to measure. It's a faulty rubric. It's a faulty um, assessment of where we're at in the sight of God. Right. This isn't a meritocracy. This is what Jesus is saying. God pours out his grace on whomever he wishes and whenever he wishes. I think when we get to heaven, we'll be shocked to see who made it in. And this is where we come back to the story and realize that the older brother is the Pharisees who've prided themselves above all on their right religion. They thought God favored them because of their true doctrine and their good ways of worship. And we can be this way, can't we? I know I can. I came from a really fuzzy background in church and theology and worship into what I believe is, you know, the truth. And, you know, um, and it can be hard sometimes. It can be easy sometimes, let me say it like that, to be lifted up in religious pride because you believe you have a right doctrine. You worship the right way. You believe the right things. And this is what the Pharisees, this was their problem. And this, is, this whole parable It's not entirely about the Pharisees, but it's essentially Jesus is pleading with the Pharisees because just seething underneath the surface for the Pharisees who are the older brother in this parable, for them is the self-righteousness that makes them hostile to others. It makes them hostile when they see people who they don't think are as worthy as them receiving God's blessing. That's what's going on. And we know the people that can fall into the younger brother's sin of wild living, riotous living. It says he spent, you know, he spent all he had on prostitutes. Um, but sometimes we're not so quick to recognize that we can be guilty of older brother sin, the pride that we can fall into, that kind of creeps us, creeps up on us. Elder brother sin is self righteousness. It's not just contempt for the younger brother's indiscretions. It's contempt ultimately for God. Elder brother sin is ultimately contempt for the father himself. Because after all the slaving for God, when it hasn't paid off, he says, all these years I've slaved for you, right? It's this idea that that this isn't working out, God. This arrangement's not working out. This is not what I signed up for, right? I thought I would have a better life by now, or I thought things would be different by now, or I thought I've paid my dues already. But you know, serving God is a mixture of joy and duty. This is what the elder brother didn't understand, that it wasn't always going to be a celebration, at least outwardly all the time. Serving the Lord and living faithfully is this mixture between joy and duty. You're not always, you're not always lifted up in ecstasy, but sometimes you do what's right because you know it's right. It doesn't always give you a feeling of overwhelming joy. Sometimes it does. But sometimes it doesn't. And so our walk with God and our commitments in life are this balance between joy and duty. Don't always feel joy, but it's right, so I'm going to keep doing it. And this is what holds marriages together. This is what makes people good and faithful employees. This is what makes people law-abiding citizens. You know, I pull up to a, a light In my neighborhood, and there's no one for a mile in either direction. And every single morning, I'm this close to just running that light because it just seems to make no sense that I have to sit there for three minutes. It's the longest light on the planet, and I I look both ways, and I just, and I know that the minute I break, I I just bust through that light. You know, I'm going to hear, you know, boo. You know, it's just they're going to come out of the trees. Yeah, there's a duty I have to just obey the law. It doesn't always make me happy, but I have a duty to be a law-abiding citizen. You know, it's our love for God that helps us to do our duty, to do what God wants us to do. It's our love for God. Not not like the elder brother, fear-based compliance. Listen, if you serve and obey God out of a sense of fear, that's unsustainable. Pure fear, right? Because you ultimately end up hating the things you're afraid of. Elder brothers don't obey God out of love, they obey God out of fear. There's this person I've been sharing the gospel with for a while and we've been talking with, and of course I'm, I'm always talking about God's grace in Jesus Christ that forgives us and makes us right with God. And this person keeps insisting that if we're saved by grace and that grace covers all of our past sins, sins past, present, and future, what's stopping us from sinning with impunity? In other words, look, if, Jesus, if you've got a blank slate of your, on your sins because of what Jesus did on the cross, what is keeping you then? In other words, this idea of, like, fear of judgment. And I said, listen, if the only thing that's keeping you from sinning is a fear of God's judgment, you've got a love problem. The older brother has a a crisis of love. And the spirit of an older brother, which is frustrated because you haven't gotten the kind of results from obeying God that you thought, this is a crisis, ultimately, of love. Because what ultimately keeps us serving the Father and working you know, in his household, so to speak, is the love that not only we've received, but the love we have for him. The love for the Father. The crisis of the older brother is a crisis of love. Now, Jesus is telling us this story about himself and the Pharisees. And he's pleading in love with his deadliest enemies. The Pharisees ultimately want him dead. The Pharisees, as the older brother, didn't want to divide the inheritance with new sinners coming into the kingdom, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. They didn't want to divide the kingdom. They didn't want to share their share of the inheritance with these sinners coming into the kingdom who, in their mind, didn't deserve it. They've been obeying the law all these years. They've been faithful. They do the temple sacrifices every single day. They, they, you know, they agonize over every jot and tittle of the law. And now you're going to let just these, these yahoos who've been living such blasphemous, disrespectful lives, right? they trample over the law of God and the commands of Moses, and you're going to let them right in? You want us to share the kingdom with them? And Jesus is saying, yeah. The book of Revelation in the 19th chapter gives us a picture of the very end of time. There's this celebration. And it's called the wedding banquet of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the guests have been invited from all different walks of life, every tribe and nation, every tongue and every kindred. And they've been counted worthy to be at this banquet not because they've been perfect or without sin, but because of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb has given them access to this marriage supper, this great banquet at the end of time where people who you would not think deserve to sit around God's table will be there rejoicing and celebrating. And I've got news for you, none of us deserve to be there. The elder brother we really need is Jesus. God the Father sent His Son Jesus and it's only through Him that we come back to the Father's house. It's not because of how good we are. It's not because of how right our theology is. It's not because we've been chugging away day in and day out at living such obedient, pleasing lives to God. It's because of Jesus. He is ultimately the elder brother that we need who did pay and give everything away that we might be found because we were lost and be brought back into the Father's house. Let's pray.